I know my Redeemer lives. That's why we come together today. It's why we've gathered in this room to celebrate the fact that our God is not dead. Every religion on the face of the earth, every group that gathers to worship some deity or some idol, some graven image that they placed on a pedestal somewhere around the world, they worship there in that spot and they worship that God. But that God is dead. Only Jesus lives. And we stand here together today as the body of Christ coming together to worship that great truth. Hey, and by the way, isn't it great that the body of Christ has come together to worship him today? Easter morning, you think about those words that we just heard and Charles just sang for us, I know my Redeemer lives. Those are words that were uttered by a guy who had every excuse not to utter them. They were uttered by a man who had gone through such calamity and such trial and such tragedy and tribulation in life that everyone would have said, you don't need to say that. You don't need to worry about that, God, because those words were uttered by a man named Job. And you know the story of Job. It's an interesting dynamic, an interesting picture of the life of Job. You think about all the things that he went through to think, to think that he would actually say, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. It doesn't make sense. You can't figure it out. And so you think that today on this Easter Sunday, we gather together. I had someone ask me last week, hey, so what are you going to preach on uh, on Sunday? And I said, well, I was thinking about maybe the resurrection. <laughs> but I told him I'm actually preaching from the book of Job. And he's like, wait, wait a minute now, you're going to preach from the book of Job on Easter Sunday? And I said, well, at least it's not like next week where I'm preaching out the Song of Solomon. I'm doing that next week. But, but the, the book of Job is a great story that lines up with the story of the resurrection. It's a great picture of how it is that we can come together and celebrate the fact that our God lives, that God loved us so very much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to come to this earth, that He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, He emerged victorious over everything that we could ever possibly imagine, over anything that we could ever possibly experience, that our Jesus lives. And those were the words that Job gave to us. Now, you know the story of Job. He's a man who honored God. He loved God with all of his heart. Somebody who walked with God every single day. He was also a very successful man. A man who had made a lot of money. He had gathered together a lot of possessions. He had a lot of land. He had a lot of stuff. And because of that stuff, he also had a lot of friends that would come along. He had a beautiful family. He had accomplished a great stature in that society, in that culture. And so people respected him. They honored him. They loved him. They wanted to be around him all of the time. He was someone that when he walked in the room, everybody would make a beeline over to talk to him because he was somebody that when he walked in the room, he took over. He was somebody who had everything in the world's view. And so one day Satan goes over to God and they begin to have a conversation. And Satan says, you know, that, that guy Job, I mean, I know he, he worships you and I know he honors you and I know he says all the right stuff, but come on, why wouldn't he? He's got everything. 
He's got all the money that anyone could ever want. He's got all the power that anybody could ever achieve. He's got all the friends that anyone could ever put up with. He's got everything that you could possibly imagine. He's got status. He's got a reputation. He's got power. He's got it all. Of course he honors you. Of course he worships you. And God said, well, wait a minute. How about this? How about if I allow all of that stuff to be taken from him? And then we'll see what he does. So you know the story, right? So God allows Satan to pull from him all the money and all the power, to pull his own family away from him. Job lost everything. It got to the point where people didn't want to be around him anymore. He lost everything. And he's sitting there in all of his trial and his tragedy with his own health, in, in, in a very difficult situation, the only thing he had left was literally a beating heart. And can you imagine like the, the rumor mill that must have been going around during that time? Can you imagine what they must have been talking about? I'll bet you Facebook and Twitter was just running rampant about the life of Job, right? I mean, look at what Job did. He had everything and then he lost everything. So you know the rumor mill. I wonder what he did. I wonder what secret sin is found in his life. I wonder what he was doing to cause all this stuff. And I wonder why he lost. Yeah, I bet he did this. I bet he did that. I mean, the rumors were going crazy. His friends who once loved him wouldn't come around him anymore, except for a few. And they came to him to tell him, okay, seriously, we're here because we love you. Like, so we want to know, like, give us the inside scoop. What, What exactly did you do? Because we know this has to do with your sin. It has to do with how you've acted. It has to do with what you've done. So, so tell what is it exactly that you've done? Because we want to pray for you, right? Ever heard that one in life? All they really wanted to do was get the inside scoop so that they could go back and break it on Twitter and Facebook later on that day. They wanted to tell the story. And so they would say, seriously, tell us what's going on. Even his wife came to him and said, just, just curse God and die. I love whenever my dad, back years ago, when he would ever preach out of the book of Job, and he would always say, his wife said, you know, she came and said, we just curse God and die. And he always said, I've never understood why God didn't take her too. You know, killed all the rest of the family, like, like strike her down, like take her, you know. Curse God and die is what she said to him. And so Job literally had nothing to live for. He had nothing left. No one that cared about him. No one that wanted to be around him. And yet, what were his words? I know my Redeemer lives. In fact, David Kleins said this about the life of Job and about his situation, where he found himself. He said these words about Job. So wherever he looks, he finds himself isolated and alienated. And it is God who has caused this, not directly, but through making him suffer. For Job's Job's suffering means that to everyone who knows him, that despite everything they thought they knew about him, Job had to be a dreadful sinner, and it is dangerous to associate with such a wicked person. In other words, Job did something, stay away. But it's interesting that when you look at the life of Job, when you walk through the the dynamic of the story of Job, that what you see is while everyone was saying, hey, you must have done something wrong, curse God and die, what Job found was not discouragement, what Job found was not loss, what Job found was not pain and sorrow to the point where he had nothing to live for, what Job found was hope. 
You see, what Job did is he found hope in his loss. Look what it says in this passage in Job chapter 19, beginning with verse 23. After having been ridiculed and rejected, after people found him repugnant, here's what Job had to say. He said, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And talking to those who came to tell him, hey, you've got no reason to live. He said, oh, listen, I wish that everybody could know the way that I've lived my life. That's what he said in verses 23 and 24. Like, I wish people could know my heart. I wish people could know, like, like how I've lived and what I've done. I wish you could write those words down and they could be posted on the wall. I wish he'd said, literally posted and, and carved into stone so the world would see them for all eternity, the way that I've lived and how I've honored God and how I've walked with God and how that no matter what came, I would always stand true to my belief in and my foundational love of God. But you see, it's interesting that in the very next verse, what Job recognized, what we need to recognize is this, it has nothing to do with what you've done. Our hope is not found in our actions. Even if you were to take all the, life, the words of the, of the life of Job and all the stories about how he honored God and walked with God, if you wrote them all down and posted them on the wall, they would do you no good whatsoever because Job knew the only hope that he could find in the midst of his loss was the fact indeed that his Redeemer lives. He went on to say in that verse, and listen, I know my Redeemer lives, and I also know that, that when this body fails, when my skin that was diseased, that was falling off, literally falling off of his bones, when, when my flesh is gone, here's what I know, I know that I will see my God. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of faith? Because let's be honest, every one person, every person gathered in this room, every person watching right now by television around the world, every person who's seated out in Main Street, every person over in the Pate Chapel and the Bruner Hall that are gathering for this service, this Resurrection Day, here's what I know about every one of us. We all have come to those kinds of moments in life. We've all experienced that kind of pain, that kind of suffering, that kind of sorrow, that when we feel like there is absolutely nothing left, what have we done? How have we responded? Have we felt sorry for ourselves? Have we cursed God? Because some have. And yet in that moment, what we can learn from the life of Job is just simply this, I know my Redeemer lives. That word redeemer is the Hebrew word gael, which literally means like something that was bought back or, or paid for, or gotten out of, out of hock, actually, is what it means. Kind of like the idea that if you had a really nice watch and you were kind of in a tough time and, and needed some money, and so you went to the local uh, pawn shop and you walked in and said, listen, I got this watch, my grandfather left it to me, it's worth a lot of money, and I need some money right now, so how much would you give me? And the person looks at it, and they say, well, you know, it's worth this much, so we'll give you a percentage of that. And so you hand over the watch, and they give you a little bit of money, and they hold on to that watch. That watch is now in hock. They're holding on to it, and you will not get it back unless you go back to that pawn shop with enough money, the money they gave you plus a lot of interest, and you go back to them and say, here's the money. I want my watch back. That's the same idea that that word gives to us, the word redeemer. That's what Jesus has done for you and me. 
That Jesus has come to buy us back from our sin, to buy us back from our destruction, to buy us back from our shackles, to buy us back when we are locked away. The same word also has the idea of someone who might be in jail. I hope nobody in this room has ever experienced this, but if you've ever been arrested and taken to jail and they they walk you before the magistrate or the judge and the judge says, listen, I'm not going to let you out unless you come up with X dollars in bail. You got to pay this bond to get out of jail. And so you're sitting there in your prison cell, and you're worried, and you're lamenting, you're sad because you don't have the money to pay yourself out of jail, and so you're sitting there thinking, like, what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden, someone shows up out of the front desk, and they come in, and they hand over some cash or write a check, and I don't think they take checks. I don't know. Um, Because, you know, the criminals don't… So they hand over the money. And when they hand over the money, the come, person comes and opens that cell, and you walk out a free person. Here's the deal. That's the same idea. That is our Redeemer. That's what Jesus has done for us. We are shackled by our sin. We are locked down by what we've done. We have no hope. We have no future. We have no way of getting out. But yet, Jesus has redeemed us. He has bought us back. And so Job said, listen, I'm not worried about the fact that I've lost everything. Yeah, it hurts. Man, I wish it hadn't happened. But I know my Redeemer lives, and I know I will see my God. What a powerful statement. If you've been reading through God's Word with us here at Thomas Road, you know we're reading through God's Word in six months. And so this past week, we're reading through the book of Job, and then we moved into the book of Psalms. And it's interesting that when you move into the book of Psalms, we find that same kind of spirit in King David. You see, King David also went through a lot of trials in his life. In fact, early on, serving in Saul's court, taking care of the king. He found that King King Saul had gotten jealous of him, and so Saul began chasing after him and wanted to kill him. He had to hide in the caves. Thousands of people were chasing him all over Israel, trying to find him to kill him. And so he was running for his life. Later in life, because of many times, because of his own actions, he found himself in the situation where people were attacking him, his own family trying to depose him, trying to get him off of the throne so that they could take over. He lost his own child who was born. And David, in the midst of all that tragedy, in the midst of all that pain, here's what David learned, just like Job did, that there's hope in our loss. What David found is there's hope in our heartache. Look what it says when David wrote these words in Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, David wrote these words. He said this, therefore my heart is glad. Stop for a minute. Remember what I said a minute ago about the life of David? Remember what David went through? Remember the pain? Remember the suffering? So here's how David begins these writing. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in, here's that word again, hope. Why? For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the idea that David writes here is, listen, I know I'm going through tough stuff, and I know you're going to go through tough stuff. Life is going to be difficult. But here's what I know. I know that my God, my Redeemer, will not allow me to rot away in Sheol. And then in the next sentence he says, and I know you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. In other words, what David was saying, in in a prophetic sense, I know you're not going to let my Redeemer rot in the grave. 
Now, there are some scholars who would debate whether or not David was actually talking about foretelling what would happen when the Messiah came. There are some that would say, no, he was referring to himself and putting himself in some kind of special category. Like he was, you know, God's anointed. He was anointed king. So therefore, he looked at himself a little bit different than everyone else. And so therefore, what David must have been saying is he was calling himself the Holy One. But I don't believe that's true. Because here's what I know about God's Word. God's Word was not written by man. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. That's why I believe when you read in the King James and the New King James and other translations, your Holy One is capitalized. Why? Because it's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the God who would send His Son Jesus to come, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried, and then three days later to walk out alive. So David wrote those words. He echoed the sentiment that Job had. Listen, I know it's tough, but I know my Redeemer lives. I know you won't allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. I know that you will raise Him to life again. And I know that at your right hand, talking about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, I know at your right hand is joy. I know at your right hand is peace. I know at your right hand is comfort. And it's not found in what we do. It's not found in our actions, it is found in Christ and Christ alone. You see, there's hope in our loss and there's hope in our heartache, and aren't you glad that's true? Because I know as I sit here and look around this room, man, we're we're all going to go through difficult times. We're all going to face those moments in life where we're going to feel like everyone's walked out the door and left us all by ourselves, we're abandoned, that our heart is broken. We may not lose as much as Job did, and we may not have the trials that David had when his own sons tried to to put him out. We may not see that, but what we will see is that we will see the world coming down on us, and it will hurt. The question is, how will we respond? Will we respond with joy? Will we respond with hope, knowing that our Redeemer lives? There's hope in our loss. There's hope in our heartache. Now, again, I don't know exactly all of the theological issues of of what David was thinking about when David penned those words, but here's what I do know. I know the same Holy Spirit that breathed those words into the pen and the hand of David is the same Spirit of God who also breathed the words into Peter. Because if you go into the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching a message And that message that he preached was just literally hours after the Holy Spirit of God had descended on those who gathered in that upper room. Just after Jesus had ascended into heaven and Jesus promised the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is going to come. It's going to come alongside as a comforter. It's going to come alongside and give you the power. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it was just after that, after Peter had experienced a life-changing experience, a presence with God in his life. And now he preached with power unlike anything that he had ever seen. The words that he spoke resonated with that crowd who gathered there in Jerusalem that many 2,000 years ago, just after Jesus had ascended into heaven, and they're there, and Peter is preaching, and listen to what Peter had to say. He said in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Acts chapter 2, verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath that him, to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, David, foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And so again, Peter preaching this message, and he referred back to Psalm 16. He said, guys, listen, remember when you would go to the synagogue and you would hear the rabbi get up and read from the the Old Testament scrolls and he would open to Psalm 16 and he would read the writings of King David, that hero of Israel, that one that we elevate, the one that we put on a, a pedestal. And remember what David said, that he knows that his God will not allow his holy one to see corruption. So that David, here's what he was talking about. He was talking about the Jesus that was just crucified. He was talking about the Jesus who is now risen from the grave. And you know Jerusalem was gripped by the story of that empty tomb, right? I mean, you think about it. Just a few days prior, that tomb that all of Jerusalem had come out to watch as as Jesus was nailed to that cross, as he allowed them to beat him, as they allowed him to, allowed them to, to nail him to that tree, that he willingly gave up his life, he was bleeding as they placed that crown of thorns onto his head and pressed it down into his skull, as they pierced his side with that spear, and then as he gave up the ghost, as he gave up his last breath, and they took that body down from the cross, and they they prepared it for burial, and they took it away, and they put it in that tomb. People all of Jerusalem were watching what was going on. They were keeping up with what was happening here. They rolled that stone in front of of that tomb. They sealed the tomb. They put guards there. Pilate, it's interesting. He said this, guards, I want you to go there and I want you to guard it the best you can. It's interesting how prophetic those words would be. And so he put those guards there. And so that seal was tombed, uh, was, was tombed. That tomb was sealed for now and forever. <laughs> Give me a break. This is my third service, okay? <laughs> I've been here since four o'clock this morning. Come on, people. And so they, they rolled that, that, that stone in front of the tomb, and it was sealed, and that body was going to be there forever. But now, as Peter's preaching this message, everything had changed because that tomb was empty. And because that tomb was empty now, man, it had become like the Disney World of Jerusalem. Everybody wanted to file by and see that empty tomb. They wanted to see what Mary saw on that first Easter Sunday morning when she arrived at the tomb. And then when they looked inside and they found the grave clothes had been tossed aside and they found the the napkin that had wrapped his head was folded in place where his head once was. And now the stone, that big boulder that had been placed there had been rolled away. And the soldiers like, we don't know what happened. Like it was like no clue what just happened. Everybody wanted to come see. They probably set up like ticket booths for people to come and, you know, pay. They probably had parking fees. You know, you drive up in your little chariot there and, you know, $10 for the day, you know. Probably like baseball that opened, had their opening day a couple of days ago. Probably had people walking through the garden by the tomb like, hey, get your hot dogs here. Actually, it wouldn't have been hot dogs because they don't eat pork. Um, Get your filet of fish here, get your Chick-fil-A here, whatever it is, you know. And so that, that's probably what's going on. Everybody wanted to see this empty tomb. And so they were mesmerized by the words that Peter had to give. They were shocked by what he had to say. 
So this King David, this one that we talk about so often here in Israel, this one who, who literally was our, our precious, beloved king, he spoke of what we now see. He prophesied about what we now experience. He talked about the fact that that Jesus that you crucified, he lives. Peter went on to say in Acts chapter 2, in the last part of that sermon in verse 36, listen to his words here. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both the Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, Peter's sermon is over. Listen to what Israel did. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch what they did? After they heard Peter preach this powerful message, they didn't sit there and talk about, well, man, I've been a really good person. Man, I've been in church all my life. My grandparents were in this church, and then my parents, and so I've been here like ever since I was born. I started coming to church before I was, nine months before I was born. So yes, I'm good. I'm a Christian. All is well. They didn't talk about that. They didn't talk about their religion. They didn't talk about the fact that they volunteered at the rabbi, you know, the synagogue's nursery. They didn't talk about how they served in the parking lot on those cold, rainy days in Jerusalem when people would show up on their mules and, and they would park their mules in the parking lot and fight over the best space. They didn't sit there and talk about other religion. They didn't talk about their denomination. They didn't talk about how a good person they've been and all the good things that they've done and how they've served their fellow man. Here's what it said. It said they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart, and the only words that they could utter, the only statements that they could make was just simply this, please tell us, what shall we do? Because they wanted to make sure that this one who had risen from the grave was not just a story they could tell, but would be the God that would save them. Peter said, it's only by believing in Jesus. He echoed the words that Jesus said in the first few days of his ministry. After he had been in the, the wilderness being tempted by Satan, look what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He said these words. It says, now after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the time is now like it's now, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, friends, what I want you to understand on this Easter Sunday, listen, it's awesome that we can celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen. It's awesome that we could sit here and, and be moved by the music that reminds us of that great truth. It's awesome that we can watch the, the video on the screen and we can be encouraged and we can be energized by the fact of what Jesus did. But let me make sure you understand, unless you have been cut to the heart on the message of the gospel, unless you've come to the place where you've said, what must I do to be saved? And unless you've gotten to the place where you believed in your heart that you are a sinner according to Romans chapter 3, and that you need a Savior according to Romans chapter 6, and that Jesus is the one who came to save you, to seek and to save that which is lost, unless you've come to the place where you say, yes, I believe, save me, turning from our sin, unless you've done that, 
then you might have been here your entire life, but here's what you're doing. You're really good at religion, but God never called us to be good at religion. God called us to be the sons and daughters of God. So what decision have you made? With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, I know there are people gathered in this room today who probably have been at church your entire life, but yet, but yet, maybe in your journey, maybe in your walk with God, you've never come to the place where you've said, yeah, I, I, man, I believe. Jesus made it very clear, believe. We've got to believe. Doesn't matter how good you've been, you've got to believe. Doesn't matter how long you've served, you've got to believe. Doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church, you've got to believe. And I don't mean just like a cursory, like, yeah, I believe. No, I mean like, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior, and I know that Jesus is the only one that can save me, and I know that He died and that He rose again. So God, save me today through Your Son, Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to lead a simple prayer, and if you're here, or if you're watching, if you're seated out in the lobby, or if you're seated in Pate Chapel or Bruner, or wherever you might be, listening on the radio, whatever you are doing at this moment, listen to me. This is the most important decision that you will ever make. I don't care how long you've been in church. I absolutely care what you do with the gospel. Have you made the decision to trust Christ? And so I'm going to pray this prayer. And as I pray this prayer, if you're seated here today and you've never come to that moment where you have made that decision to believe that Jesus died and that He rose again, to turn from your sin and trust Christ, I just want you to pray this prayer silently with, with me from your heart to the heart of God. Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is the only one who can save me. I believe that He died and that He rose again. So Father, today, forgive me of my sins. I turn from them. And save me today through Your Son, Jesus. Thank You, God, for saving me. Change me now because of what You've done. In Jesus' name I pray, with every head bowed and with every eye closed, I just want to ask you a very important question. With no one looking around, I just want to ask you that today on this Easter Sunday, if you prayed that prayer from your heart to God's and you meant it, what I want you to do right now with no one looking around but me, I just want you to slip your hand up in this room. I want to give to you a book that my dad wrote many, many years ago called How to Get Started Right of how to make that decision, how to walk in it, how to have your life change. And we're going to bring that to you and just give it to you free of charge. If you prayed that prayer, just raise your hand right now, wherever you are. Don't be embarrassed. This is important. Wherever you are, raise your hand right now. Wherever you are, there's some in the back over here on the right. Raise your hand wherever you are. Some right over here. Russ, right in front of you. Wherever you are, raise your hand. Wherever you are, just keep that hand held high until someone comes and hands you a book. Just keep that hand up. It's important. This is important. This is a big deal. Because God has promised to save us, but we got to believe. This is important. Just keep that hand up until someone comes. Now listen, when the service is over in a moment, Ian, right here in the front, buddy, right here. When this service is over, in a moment, our, our pastors are going to be gathered here. They're going to be gathered at the door. And when you're leaving in a few moments, 
Maybe if you didn't raise your hand, I want you to come and talk with one of them and they'll hand that book to you, talk with you for a minute. You can go to our website at trbc.org slash start. Well, whatever it is, just, just know this. This is a big deal. And I just want you to make sure that you are connected to, following after what Jesus has done for you. Now look at me right now if you would. Let me just tell you something. Today we celebrate the fact that our Redeemer lives. We celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave. What a great gift that is. Because just as Job did, just as David did, just as all of us will, there are going to be moments where our heart is broken. There are going to be moments where we are falling apart. And here's what we must always do. We must always recognize that our Jesus is not dead in the grave, that He is alive, that He has turned our pain into joy, that He has turned our sorrow into peace, that He has turned all of our tragedies into encouragement. He has turned our graves into gardens. There is no one, no one, no one like our God. I want to thank you for joining with us here at Thomas Road Baptist Church for this special Easter celebration as we come together to mark the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died on the cross for us, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose again. And so today, if you have heard something that has sparked a desire in your heart to begin a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, I encourage you to let us know. You can email me at pastor at trbc.org or you can go to our website at trbc.org start to begin a journey that will change not only your today, but that will also change your eternity. God loves you. Christ died for you. He rose again for you. And my prayer is that today that you will make a decision that will change everything.